Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am swanning around my Art Deco office uh, blackmailing people. I'm happy to be talking about movies with, I, I guess, a friend and somebody who's going to really, really screw up my life. Also a blackmailer? That's, okay, interesting. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, the Winter Olympics are a minor disaster for basically everyone involved. Uh, let's start with the most important thing, the ratings. Uh, the opening ceremonies from Beijing were monumentally awful, averaging just 16 million viewers, a record low. That's a drop of 43% from the 2018 games in South Korea, and worse than the 1988 games in Calgary, the previous record low. Some will say, well, this is just a function of the live audience being fragmented fragmented, right? Nobody watches TV anymore. Uh, but that 16 million figure is the figure across all networks and streaming options for NBC. The TV-only audience, not really that much worse, 14 million. Still pretty bad, obviously. Part of the reason for the decline has to do with audience discomfort over the host nation's history of... Hold on, let me check my notes here. I just want to make sure I have this right. Yes, that's right. Decades of human rights abuses and the ongoing ethnic cleansing of the uh, minority Uyghur population. Uh, I, for one, am shocked that audiences in America aren't particularly interested in hearing NBC Savannah Guthrie proclaim that China's use of a token Uyghur during the opening ceremony's torchlighting was, quote, an in-your-face, end quote, response to the West. We know, Savannah, we just find it disgusting. Similarly disgusting are the ongoing efforts by the Chinese government and the IOC to make the disappearance of tennis star Peng Shui a non-event. Every time she comes out with a statement saying, no, seriously, uh, I really, I was not sexually assaulted, and uh, they didn't erase my statement from the internet because they were trying to cover it up. It was It's just big misunderstanding, guys. It's disgusting, and we're all kind of tired of seeing it. Um, and similarly, folks seem to be tired of sports journalists who have spent the last five years or so hyping social justice as the most important thing in sports decide to give China a pass on, you know, again, the actual literal ethnic cleansing. When J.A. Adande tries to deflect from coverage of the Olympics uh, by saying on ESPN, well, who are we to judge? After all, there are voter ID laws in some states. And also, the NFL still has Dan Snyder as an owner. It kind of gives away the game. Uh, it's worth noting that Adande is the director of sports journalism at Northwest University. You know, LOL. Um, I guess it's a little too much to ask Adande to take a stand when, uh, you know, Chinese cops are literally pulling Dutch reporters off camera while they're on the air reporting. Essentially, the only mainstream outlet I've seen hitting China on human rights stuff as it relates to the Olympics is CNN and Jake Tapper, who have been reminding people pretty relentlessly that China is an authoritarian prison state that treats its people despicably. Um, Alyssa, I'm not really one for boycotts in general, and I'm not boycotting this because it's like, I just, I frankly don't care that much about the Winter Olympics anyway, but it's really not that difficult to see why folks are very, very uninterested in playing along that this is just, you know, a normal Winter Olympics, right? Yeah, I mean, and let's also give some credit to our colleagues over at the Washington Post who have also been talking about how yes. gross this whole spectacle yes. is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's a difference between a boycott and people just individually deciding that, you know, this feels icky in a way that doesn't make up for the fact that, you know, watching the Olympics has always been sort of weird behavior by Americans, right? It's like, it's not like we as a nation are passionately committed to, you know, intrigues in like the ranks of skeleton competitors or that we know a lot about curling. We are, we are not our neighbors to the North. We are not Canadians. Like we don't care about any of this nonsense. And so, you know, 
Americans care about the Olympics every four years as like sort of a national pride thing, but we don't, you know, we, we don't have a genuine, for the most part, we don't have like a genuine longstanding interest in most of these competitors or their storylines. And so we tune in every four years because it's sort of a nationalistic and internationalist exercise. But when the nationalist and internationalist parts of the ceremony just start to feel really gross and unfun, then it's pretty easy easy for an audience to fall away. Um, You know, I mean, to a certain extent, I feel sort of terrible for NBC here um, since they have the rights to both the Olympics, which are becoming increasingly queasy and gross to watch, and the Golden Globes, which they decided not to air at all. (laughs) Um, And so there's a sort of a larger story here about the, you know, the sort of live events business, which is supposed to be like the last unkillable part of television, um, kind of falling by the wayside unless you're the NFL, which remains undefeated um, as a as a viewing enterprise. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't even have to think of this as a boycott. It's just a spectacle that never made a ton of sense and now is not working anymore because the, you know, sort of we are the world, we are the children mumbo jumbo uh, is so patently nonsense. Well, I think there's also an element here that uh, in recent years, they, the, the networks have really downplayed the nationalistic angle here. It's no longer yeah. the United States versus Russia or the USSR. It's not the United States versus China. It's like, look at these individual stories. Look yeah. at this. Look at this person who is a bagger at Kroger uh, for, you know, three years and then trains really hard to shoot skeet or whatever you do in the Olympics. I don't even know. I don't I'm not a, I'm not an Olympics person, but it's harder to convince people that this is interesting than it is to be like, yes, go rah, 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 America. And I think that, Peter, is a real problem. Uh, I think that is a problem beyond the scope of sports. I think it's just a, a problem with society in general. We need to be more pro-America in America, says Sonny. Well, I'm pro-America, um, and and I consider myself a patriot. And one of the ways that I, can, you know, mm. sort of think of uh, myself as a patriot is that I express my patriotism by rooting for individuals and by, like, that's what America is about, right? And this has always been sort of the, the, a little bit of a tension in the American idea is that on the one hand, there's like a sort of American uh, – there's there's like a tradition of you know a, a very specific country based nationalism. On the other hand, like what America is good at is individual achievement and promoting individual ideas uh, and and individualism, right? And so there's always been this kind of tension. And you know, in some ways, it's like you can you can say, well, NBC has been downplaying the the uh, the nationalistic aspect, but I also wonder. And this is a question I have uh, for you, Sonny, but also for for Alyssa. Is there any audience demand for that? Do people want a kind of rah-rah, you know, America versus China? Like this is, you know, uh, this is a proxy for our, you know, uh, for great nation competition, right? Like like the Olympics were perceived um, in the 1970s and the 1980s with Russia. Is that something that that there's actually demand for or – is it that well, there's no audience interest in that either? And NBC is responding to the fact that people want to watch sports because they want to see people do uh, like amazing things with their bodies and uh, that they've, you know, that they've trained for for a long time, but they don't care about the flag waving aspect anymore. But that's that's my point, though. That That's literally my point is that we've had a decline in that sort of patriotic fervor, which is a problem when the only real measure of success in the Olympics is the big metal board with the flags on it and you're you're cheering for the flag. 
uh, to be at the t- uh, our flag to be at the top of the other flags. If people don't care about the American flag being at the top of the the, the rest of the flags, then it doesn't. It, like the Olympics don't make any sense. So yeah, this is. I mean, not, I will say the that Olympics, that's- the Olympics are not about individuals. The Olympics are about. Uh, medal counts for countries and which country is the best at that. That's what the Olympics is actually about. So I am a non-Olympics watcher and that's one reason is that I've never cared about the medal counts right. for the country. Because you hate to America. The ex- to the right, extent I that I have thought that the that I have uh, been interested in certain Olympic events, it's always been because I think the individuals uh, and their accomplishments are interesting. And that to me has always, like, that's the part of it that I can kind of understand. Like, Michael Phelps is an interesting character and he would be an interesting character if he came from Australia, uh, right? He's just, he's like a, he's a sort of superhuman. Uh, is he that interesting? I don't know. He's kind he's of kinda interesting. He is interesting as somebody who can accomplish amazing things with his body, right? Like, regardless of whether you think his story or his character or his personality is interesting, he just has like a, a freakishly amazing swimming body that he has, that he was able to use, you know, um, in, in ways that were kind of incredible. And that's true for a lot of Olympic athletes is that they are amazing physical specimens who have taken care of themselves and trained themselves in certain ways. And that, that to me is the most interesting thing about it. But like, I, I've never cared about the, the nationalistic aspect. And this is, you know, one thing I've always, I've, I'm also not like a, just a non-sports watcher in general, because I don't care if my city beats somebody else's city. Seems totally uninteresting to me. Wrong. Erroneous. Um, I guess, does this leave me as like the, the person on the podcast who's watched the most Olympics? It might. Um, so to this time, to certainly question, this time, sir, I, like yeah. I'm not I, I have watched zero minutes of this year's Olympics. I used to be a pretty rigorous Olympics watcher, but yeah. like I just I, I have I guess getting older and having kids is it's fallen by the wayside. Uh, so but to circle back to the sort of specifics of your question, one of the reasons it's hard or at least somewhat challenging to manufacture a U.S. versus China narrative in the Olympics is that the Chinese Olympic program has actually encouraged athletes to specialize in weird sports so they can run up the medal counts. Um, there, there was a, there were a couple of stories about this during the summer Olympics where, you know, China in pursuit of that position across atop the national leaderboard has just sort of sought out odd things to specialize in. So it's not like, you know, you're getting a big like U.S.-China hockey rivalry. There's some of that in gymnastics, but you're not necessarily getting those big clashes of competition in the sports that are popular in the United States or that are like indigenously popular in China. I mean, basketball has become fairly popular in China, but it's, you know, that national team is not competitive with the the U.S. team in the same way that, um, you know, you might have seen in a previous era in a different sport. Um, I watch. I mean, I grew up during a, an era when there was a lot of attention to figure skating among girls my age. Like the, you know, the um, Tanya Harding Nancy Kerrigan rivalry and like ensuing fallout there were like really formative events in like teen girl culture at the um, when I was growing up. Um, I've watched a lot of gymnastics over the years and definitely gotten invested in those teams. Although, you know, for the last couple of years, one of the overarching uh, narratives in gymnastics, of course, has been the totally disgusting abuse by American Olympians by Dr. Larry Nasser, the former uh, USA t- team gymnastics doctor. And so that's a, a space where I think a lot of us watching those competitions are rooting for individual women on that team, but finding it very hard to 
appreciate that as kind of a national or institutional celebration because they are, pers- you know, someone like Simone Biles was sexually abused is sort of persevering in spite of all of the frameworks that were set up around her, right? Like trying to treat her victories and her accomplishments as proof of anyone else's goodness just feels really wrong given what was done to her by someone in the employee of the team. So I think there are a bunch of different factors that make it hard to program the Olympics as a spectacle of American accomplishment right now. Um, And that would be a challenge sort of even if there was a big resurgence of patriotism right now, which of course there is not. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I, the real problem here is that there's nobody to be versus. I, I'm always, as I as as folks who listen to the show know, I'm very big on the who versus question. So it's United States versus who? China, I guess, but the Chinese, as you say, have have like essentially taken over like a ton of crappy little sports, which is a, a secondary problem in the Olympics, which is that there are a ton of crappy little sports. Should just get back to running and swimming and ch- shooting basketballs. And uh, maybe archery, um, but like uh, all the cool the, ski jumping stuff, you gotta have the like. Well, that's winter. That's winter game. The winter games aren't really sports anyway. They're just they're just games. It's that's that's it's Bob it's a sledding. degraded. I mean, uh, it's a degraded. Cool it's a degraded is a Olympics great anyway. movie. The, the Winter Olympics cool is, is delightful. The Winter Olympics. I mean, this is a, a tertiary problem with all this is that the Winter Olympics are by far the lesser Olympics. Like, there's no reason to care about them because they're dumb. Uh, for the most part, anyway. So, like that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's a secondary problem, tertiary problem. But, uh, but like I, I do think the the real problem is who versus. And like you know, in the sixties and seventies and eighties, it was U.S. versus Russia, U.S. versus USSR. Nobody has arisen to be a reasonable competitor, and it's just kind of it's like who cares? Isn't that in some ways a good thing that there isn't like a a big national rival on the no. the global stage? No, America needs somebody to be versus, just like the characters on Always Sunny I mean, this in Philadelphia. Is, this is, we need to be who versus. This, that's, this that's is like nationalistic Paul Krugmanism, right? I don't Where, know what that means. Like, in the sense that like he was like, well, you know, you could actually rally the economy with like a big alien attack, right? Like the end of Watchmen, windows, right? Yeah. Like, that's and right. That's, and and this is Made wrong. Sense. Made sense. This to is me. deeply wrong. We do not need a grand enemy to unite us, man. We don't I need. Mean, that's it. just factually, obviously incorrect. Look at how fragmented the world is right now. We don't I mean, we like. Do. This is not a good idea. That the the squid monster at the end of Watchmen is a villainous, villainous thing, and that's the whole point of it. Is that like bringing yes, people together? True. But, but by, this is why the, by giving them a common enemy that kills millions but, is no, a but that, bad that, idea. That's, your, that's an argument for your POV, for a unipolar world where everybody's getting together. But without without the squid, it's the United States versus the USSR forever in perpetuity. I, this is why the, it's better to have the Olympics than a squid monster. Can we agree on that? <laughs> yes. Um, sorry, I just snorted Diet Dr. Pepper up my nose because that is true. This is a this is a good case. We should have Winter Olympics. No squid. Good there should have been a, a, an Olympics at the end of Zack Snyder's Watchmen since he took out the squid monster, which is the best visual in like the history of comic books. And like somehow or another, Zack Snyder was like, eh, I guess we'll just have like a burst of light instead. And, you know, what any, he should have been, what he should have given us too was hard. a winter Olympics. <laughs> that would have been this. Yes, that would have been better. They could have had the comedian doing, you know, trap shooting. Oh, boy. Uh, all right. So. So no, what do we, I, I mean, what do we I, think? I, so is, I actually I, I want to pick up on this like just a little bit here on this uh, this idea that like this is a thing that either brings people together or 
uh, or divides them, um, and then link it back to what uh, Alyssa was saying about institutional decline. Because part of the problem here is that the International Olympic Committee is just vile and corrupt and awful and has been. And people know that now in a way that I think they maybe didn't know it in quite as much, and it's maybe even more true. Um, and so part of the story here, I think, is institutional decline and the lack of stewardship of uh, major cultural institutions, whether they are sporting, whether they are sort of uh, nationalistic, what whatever it is, um, and that they're just like what we need actually is a new institution that is not the Olympics as we have known them, that is not the IOC, that is in fact uh, that like that that is intentionally individualistic and intentionally takes this outside of great power national competition and focuses it on the thing that is that is potentially great about the Olympics, even that even I find myself occasionally interested in as somebody who doesn't particularly care about sports and certainly doesn't care about like national pride in that sense. Um, Look, I don't want to get all the, like, I what get we all... need is a, is a what we need is a, is a, a world games that actually focuses people on the good sports and great athletes. Well, the, what you're saying we need is a return of the team from Home Depot, which for a long time employed Olympic athletes in the offseason in part so it could run ads about like these individuals who were striving and like pulling them, you know, funding their Olympic dreams by working at the Home Depot. This was like a big thing around the turn of the century. Uh, I, I think in the 2000 games, they employed like 116 people on the Olympic team. I'm pro Home Depot. Yes. <laughs> Home Depot is better than Lowe's. Put it that way. Uh, it's certainly right, so, closer to my house. Uh, this is uh, this this kind of got away from what I wanted to talk about, but that's good. Uh, so, what do, what do we think? Is the is the coverage of the Beijing Winter Games a controversy or a controversy, Peter? It's kind of a controversy, Alyssa. It's controversial. It's obviously controversial. I can't believe I like I remain gobsmacked at those uh, clips from J. A. Adande and Savannah Guthrie, and it's just like I, the, the most tone deaf. The most tone deaf nonsense I've ever seen. It's it's bad. People should people should be you know outraged. Be outraged for once, people. Uh, stop being such even keeled. You know, just going along with the flow. Nonsense for is once fine, in your lives. but tone deaf nonsense is what we're <laughs> tone against. Deaf nonsense it's the tone is bad. deafness of the nonsense. There was some nonsense in that segment. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't? It's great. Please head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a special bonus episode on uh, the special brand of idiocy and nonsense, but not tone deaf nonsense. That is the Jackass series. And now on to the main event. Nightmare Alley, which is streaming now on HBO Max. Guillermo del Toro's adaptation of William Lindsay Gresham's 1946 novel is, I think, his best film since Pan's Labyrinth, uh, and one of the best films of the last year. I saw it twice, uh, once via a press streaming link, uh, the other time in theaters in its black and white version, which has been making the rounds, um, and found it chilling and moving both times. The film stars Bradley Cooper as Stanton Carlyle, a drifter during the back end of the Great Depression who falls in with a carnival. After seeing the tricks of the trade, uh, how Zena the Seer and her husband Pete do their mentalist show, how Clem, who is played with a chilling grin by Willem Dafoe, convinces the down on their luck to take part in the geek show, biting the heads off chickens for a pint of liquor a night, uh, Stanton runs off with Molly, who's played by Rooney Mara, to the big city of Buffalo. Um, there, the two of them put on Zena and Pete's old act, wowing audiences and earning the 
the attention and the attraction of a dangerous psychiatrist with the appropriately biblical name Lilith. Uh, Blanchett plays Dr. Lilith Ritter with a sort of icy maternalism. You can never quite be sure what her game is, uh, and you can't quite be sure what she's doing with Ezra Grindle, who is played with cutting viciousness by Richard Jenkins until the end of the picture. I won't say much more about the plot than that, uh, except to note that the end, as written by Guillermo del Toro and Kim Morgan, hews closer to the source novel than the 1947 adaptation of the same, and is much better for it. But I do want to emphasize the unflinching brutality of this film. It's a picture uh, about the lies we tell ourselves and the pain those lies can cause, uh, both to others and to our own sense of ourselves and our own well-being. Um, when you fool yourself into believing that you have a power you don't, you risk losing uh, your soul and much more. The moral brutality, uh, and this is a very dark hearted noir. This is a noir in the original idea of what a noir could be, uh, is reflected in the actual on-screen brutality. We see a chicken get its head bitten off. Uh, we see a man's nose punched into his face, literally, just punched right through it. Uh, we see a guy get hit by a car and his bones just going like rubber. Um, these flashes of brutality are not new for Del Toro. We get similar glimpses in Crimson Pre Peak and The Shape of Water, uh, but they're more fitting here uh, as they were in Pan's Labyrinth in the service of uh, an almost sort of nihilism at the heart of the movie than they were in Peak and Water, which were a little more hopeful pictures, I think. Um, and I, I'd also just like to say briefly, if you can find the black and white version, if it's playing near you, it's worth checking out. Uh, the smoky atmosphere comes through more vividly. There's something incredibly chilling about Bradley Cooper's eyes drained of color in the black and white. Um, and the film ends with just a close-up on him that has to be seen on a 40-foot screen to really be appreciated. It's much. It's a must-watch if you can find it playing on a big screen near you. Uh, Peter, we were we were texting about this movie, and you had a very wrong theory about what it was about. <laughs> Could you uh, please be sharing this with our lovely, lovely listeners? Yeah. So I, you know, this is a movie about how we think we're fooling other people, um, but we're really fooling ourselves. And so it's the story of someone who learns the tricks of of the trade in the entertainment business. Right? He starts at a circus at a sort of uh, out of the way uh, uh, entertainers forum where he and then he and he gets the book with all the secrets, the one that really shows you just how to make the kind of mentalism game work. Right? And so it is literally it's it's hidden in a a secret book, and then he's got. He gets some other, you know, sort of tips and tricks from the from the carnies there. And but we also crucially learn that he has a bit of a gift for it himself because he understands kind of the showmanship of it and is in some ways better at the showmanship than some of the people who are already doing it. And that's how he, in, you know, integrates with the, the carny crew. And as he gets this book and learns these tricks, he becomes incredibly powerful and successful, right? And because he, it's not just, he's no longer just doing this at the at the circus. He gets a big show where he's in a tuxedo and playing for rich and fancy people. Uh, and in the process, he becomes enamored with this power that he has, this power to manipulate people through entertainers' tricks. And so I think that this is a movie in some ways about the allure of the entertainment industry and, and about how sort of young and hungry, you know, sort of people who have, who have no background, you know, or of shady backgrounds come and learn the tricks of the trade in Hollywood and learn how to do what Hollywood does best, which is to manipulate people. And there's literally, there are books of tricks that just work 
work in movies, that work on television, that work in screenplays, that work on podcasts and you serve pundits and right. Anybody who kind of does that, like who anybody who does something that is sort of that is sort of entertainment knows this. Politicians use this sort of thing, too. And I think you can read this as a as a story about people who are politician or pundit like right as as well. But this is a story about people who a, a man who learns to use those entertainers tricks and doesn't know how to stop himself, becomes full of his own, you know, sort of uh, gets too high on his own power. And then, of course, um, it has a very dark ending. It ends up very bad for him. Uh, and so to me, I think this is in some ways a kind of dark reflection of how uh, how I suspect Del Toro sees the entertainment industry uh, and and Hollywood's power to manipulate the public and the ways that that power is abused, and but also the toll it takes on the people who are doing it uh, because they don't understand the power they have and don't respect it. I mean, I think it is partly about, I mean, it could be uh, tangentially about that because it's just about how people lie to themselves and like how, how people fall under the sway of grifters and, and what they are willing to do to make themselves uh, seem better, but like neither here nor there. Uh, Alyssa, what, what did you make of nightmare alley? It's interesting. I think I liked it somewhat less than both of you. And since I watched it, I've been thinking about Bradley Cooper as an actor um, because he he's undeniably one of he's a major movie star. Right. Um, I think there's no denying that. And he's very good. And yet somehow I have a lot of trouble connecting with his characters. Um and, you know, you mentioned his eyes and I think maybe to a certain extent – and, I, you know, I've met Bradley Cooper. I've done – I did an event with him years ago. Like I, I know he's a real person who's like engaged on issues. But he – there is something about his expression and there's always this sort of – I've really been struggling with this because, you yeah. know, I, as I watched this movie, I found I was just having trouble – connecting with his performance in a way that made me realize that I've had trouble connecting with a lot of his characters. Like I can't stand him in silver linings playbook. And there's that he's the reason that that movie doesn't really work for me. Um, you know, he does not work particularly well for me in a star is born, even though I think Lady Gaga is fantastic. Um, and I find him much more convincing and interesting in parts where he is playing characters who are supposed to be a little off, right? I mean, his sort of star-making supporting turn in Wedding Crashers, for example, is a great performance in part because he's a character who, on the surface, is supposed to seem very sort of normal and desirable and ends up revealing himself to be really kind of toxic and scary and mean and ugly. You know, I liked him a lot in Licorice Pizza, for example, in part because as like a coked up John Peters, he's playing someone who is very sort of mannered. He's playing someone who's supposed to read as really off. And I have a hard time just sort of reading him as like a normal guy who I'm supposed to connect with. Um, well, but well, isn't but that I part of the point you, of this you, story? Yeah, you is are not that supposed to connect with him. Is that he's not normal. That like yes, yeah. when we when we first meet him in that in the first act, interestingly, right, he says almost nothing for like the first twenty minutes of this movie. I don't know if it, yeah. he might not have dialogue for for ten fifteen minutes at all. Um, you're not supposed to connect with him. You're supposed to. He's supposed to be a bit of a cipher. And the movie the movie is is tricking you a little bit because of course at first we see him and he's Bradley Cooper. He's handsome. He is you know he's 
he has a, he's struggling with something, right? Like he's not he he wants to he wants something out of life, and that brings you in a little bit uh, at the beginning, yeah. right? Um, and then as you see how how he is developing, the movie pulls your sympathy away from him. It's actually a little bit like um, it's not exactly like, but it's a little bit like uh, a hero, which we talked about last week, in the way that this movie drains sympathy from its protagonist, which yeah. is very first- unusual in a, a in a movie period, but especially in a, a somewhat big budget movie with a big movie star. The first shot of this movie is him putting a body in the floorboards of a house and lighting it on fire. I'm sorry, th- this is not a character that we're supposed to have a lot of sympathy for going going into it even if he's a drifter even if like he we show him literally disposing of a body and burning the house down around it like there's no universe in which we're supposed to be like this is our guy this is the guy we need to get behind yeah i think i'm not i i am really struggling to explain this reaction to him and to his body of work um can i can i can i uh, just interject because i i think i think so you see something similar in the hangover where he is playing, he's playing a very, he's playing a fairly unpleasant school teacher uh, who clearly, who is like stealing from the kids. Like the first shot of the movie is him collecting money for a field trip that he's going to use in Vegas on, you know, whatever. Throughout that movie, he is he is borderline sociopathic in in his behavior. And look, I like Bradley Cooper a lot. I think he's a great actor. Um, and I think you see this also in American Sniper uh, and this movie, The Hangover. And some some of his other stuff, but he has an almost reptilian quality to him, which is that when you look into his eyes, you see him calculating in a way, looking looking for the edge. And I I think that is off putting. And it's it is I it is if if being an actor is in the eyes, and this is a thing that people say, and I think is basically true, but it's hard to explain. But if being an actor is in the eyes, like his eyes have a very chilling quality to them, even when, even as the rest of his face is like very kind of open. And like traditionally attractive and and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I I wonder if the best way to say it is he always seems to me like he is a robot who is doing an amazingly good job of playing a human who's acting, right? There's always just something I find it difficult to connect to him even as a <laughs> – you know, even when he's playing these unsympathetic characters, and I think he's at his most effective for me when he's playing these characters who are not just sort of unsympathetic, but on some level off. But I just... I, I mean, his actually, greatest role is Rocket Raccoon yeah. in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's great as that because he gives us a, a raccoon who is weirdly off, right? And it's not yeah. just that he's off in a predictable way, right? He just keeps... He, like, what's part of what great it works about that performance is it's well-written and all of that, but... No. But he is he delivers a voice performance in which Rocket Raccoon continually keeps you off balance, right? Throughout the yeah. throughout both of those movies, it's like every single moment, Bradley Cooper is finding some new way to just tilt the 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 sort of mental balance of the character a little bit in a way that is unexpected. And it's always a little bit fresh and always a little bit new. And that's why Rocket Raccoon is like he's he's sort of like weirdly lovable, but also quite sort of scary. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the other, this is just sort of stuck in my brain a little bit, but the movie never convinces me why Stanton would start drinking. And that's sort of a key plot development. Like it leads us to the denouement. Yeah. But it never, I mean, by the end of the movie, I sort of felt like, well, he takes the drink because the movie needs him to become an alcoholic. And... I found that just a weird 
it's like a lacuna in the development of the script. I don't know if it read that way to you guys, but I had trouble understanding why that happens. I think that's a fair criticism. You know, he he is maybe it's just a function of he is offered temptation so many times by Lilith that yeah. he eventually succumbs to it. I mean, I, I think that is, I think that's part of it. I, I also um, think it is the allure of Lilith and the Lilith character is the character who, who he is unable to manipulate fully, who is in, who is manipulating him in some sense. And he finds having that done to him in a skillful way and not being able to see exactly what is happening, he finds that attractive, right? It's because everybody else, he can just read perfectly. That's what the movie establishes is that he's so good at reading everybody else. He just, right, it's he, it like, and so he kind of treats people like trash. Um, he, they are, they are flimsy and disposable to him. But when Lilith shows up, he is able to read her, but not perfectly and not fully. And he doesn't quite know what game she's playing, and that's how she sucks him in because that is his weakness is to not know and to not be certain about it. And so as a result, he is less in control of himself around her and that lack of control that that she brings out in him that no one else can bring out is why he takes the drink. Because he both because he both has less control and also has over the course of the this uh, the the story at this point convinced himself that he is perfectly in control at all times even when even when it is dangerous to be so even when he doesn't actually have the control that he thinks he does. See, I think that would be a stronger explanation if he hadn't sort of broken down in that therapy session. Like if he had convinced himself that you know this was an equal but not a superior. And that he was going to demonstrate how in control he was by drinking. Um, I think that the movie makes a strong case for why he would be attracted to her and why he would have an affair with her, but not why he would give up that sort of essential part of his personality. I mean, I I just think my my only complaint about the drinking is that it it is it's frankly unnecessary. I don't think you I don't think you need it as a as a plot device to explain how he gets in over his head at the end. I think you would have been the movie would have been fine with him just thinking he can do it and and getting getting uh, getting getting messed up. And then and then after it fails, as he's, you know, riding the rails, turning turning to drink. Um, But yeah, I can we talk a little bit about uh, Guillermo del Toro as set designer here? Because I I do uh, I, I, I this is another one of his films that is just wonderful to look at just like the the yeah. sets the actual the the circus set obviously there's like a lot of showy things you can do with a circus set but beyond that like the art deco uh a therapist lounge which there's is a like I joked about that at the beginning of the episode because it's it's so well done right it's art it's sort of art deco taken to the max in a way that is just is so disorienting and overwhelming and yet so i mean art deco is very, you know, polished. It's smooth. There are a lot of arcs. Um, and so it has this feminine quality, but a sort of overwhelming one. And it's overwhelming sort of even in the beginning, right? And initially that's sort of part of the appeal. And then you see how dangerous it is. And I mean, I I joked about it, but it's, it is so divine. Um, and even down to the way that, you know, the um the waves in Lilith's hair sort of match the curves in the office. It just I mean the costume work is impeccable too. Yeah, I think this and uh, Dune are the best looking big budget movies of the year. Uh, maybe along with West Side Story, which I really liked, but I think both of these films are are a little better. 
uh, put together visually. Um, and it's, it's also interestingly intentional, right? He's just, there's so much thought that has gone into every design choice and every frame. And if you guys ever get a chance, you should look up the design Bible that Del Toro wrote for Hellboy. You can find this online. Mm. And he talks about the use of color and which and how no objects can be read except for Hellboy. And like, unless you get special permission, right? And so the whole film has like this very distinct color scheme where absolutely every single thing in it is perfectly controlled, uh, where it has all been kind of designed and imagined in advance. And he is the one who is doing this. He puts together these memos for his production team. It's not that he hires somebody based on a pitch, right? I mean, it's it's that he has all of this in his mind and then works with his with incredibly talented uh, artisans and craftsmen to put this stuff together. But because he is able to imagine it up front and give them the direction, he is bringing out the best, I think, in uh, in the ta- in the craftsmen that he works with. Yeah, there is a knock on Del Toro that says, you know, he you know, his movies are OK. He's a fantastic set designer. And and like he spends too much time focusing on that instead of the story and, and everything else. And I'm sympathetic to it sometimes. I, I like I, I you know. I am sympathetic to this because I I do think that some of his movies don't don't quite work for me on the story on the level of story just like pure story but uh, I also think it's a little unfair because he is clearly very very talented behind well, the camera. Also, it's cinema, right? I mean, the design is part of the point. The, like the design yeah. is part of what pulls you into the world, and you know, there's an extent to which Del Toro, despite the fact that he is often brutal and visceral, is mannered in some of his set designs. Um, and I think that actually works really well here in part because the milieu that Stanton is operating in for the core of the movie is mannered, right? I mean, it is high society. It's the very, you know, sort of the details of the ties and the cars. It's, you know, it's a someone who is brutal but who lays out a really immaculate garden as a tribute to his deceased lover. It's, you know, it is a mannered environment and someone who cares about mannered set design, Um does really well there. And I would say that the mannerism of his set design and of his shot choices uh, is an influence on his storytelling style too. And you can see a relationship to between the two because his storytelling is extremely schematic. Every single detail is sort of put there to do one bit of work, right? And there's there's nothing sort of kind of, there's nothing loose or out of place in his storytelling, uh, in, in his scenes and in, in his, even in the performances he gets out of people. It's all, it's all extremely well thought out and like it all, all always adds up. But that of course means that, uh, you know, he has issues like uh, the the ones that I think Sonny has with some of his villains, where they're too villainous, where there's right, like where they're too they're they're very simple and clear and direct characters, because what he wants is everything to have an explicit and clear and undeni- you know uh, and unambiguous purpose, right? He writes these like it's almost like writing you know uh, like only uh, perfectly unambiguous single idea sentences, except that that's what he's doing with both his set design and with his stories. And, you know, with each little individual scene is that every single thing has been thought out and placed perfectly because he is a, because he's, he's clearly a, uh, an ambitious control freak. And I mean that in a, 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 in a, in a, the co- nicest way in a complimentary way, because that is what directors should be. But he has no room for anything else that is outside of his vision uh, that he has, you know, that's clearly just exists in his head uh, before he, before even a single shot of the fr- of 
film um, is filmed, right? And to a certain extent, this made me wish that he would, I hope that he and Kate Blanchett will work together again because she has that sort of, like, she is her own special effect, right? <laughs> she, you know, has this sort of hotter and coldness um, that is perfectly suited to a Nora sensibility, but she can do so many other things as well. And I just, like, in a weird way, I would love to see the two of them make a comic book movie together. That would be far more interesting to me than, like, her turn as Hela in the Marvel Cinematic There's so many good performances in this movie, though, right? Yes. Like, Tony Collette and David Strathairn are, are amazing. But even, like, our, you know, our podcast favorite, Holt Michelani, shows up at the basically the end of the second yep. act just for, like, the final yeah. 35 minutes. And it's a really pretty small role that doesn't have any fancy flashy dialogue or a whole lot to do and he's so, so good, good in it he's just so good and like i i am like increasingly i i feel like holt michelani is like the the best supporting act like undersung supporting actor in hollywood and this is yet another piece of evidence for it along with uh, yeah. wrath of man earlier this year in which he just yeah. was incredible so good bring back uh, Mindhunter. <laughs> I uh but Peter Peter mentioned that uh I I have previously taken issue with Del Toro specifically specifically in the shape of water where everybody is like so pure all the all the heroes are so pure and so good-hearted and the villains are the most villainous sort of bigots across all you know it's the the, in, the intersectionality of their bigotry is almost comic uh in a way it's narratively um, and, and morally schematic and simple it is it it is, it is, I, 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 that, I, that movie really, I was, I was one of the few critics to very harshly go after it and foolish me. It, it's the Del Toro picture that ends up winning best picture jokes on me, but the, it, this movie solves that problem by having everybody just be morally compromised. There is, there is no hero in this film. Even Rooney Mara's character is a carny who is, you know, along for the ride, taking, taking people, uh, taking advantage of people, I like she. She's the she's the best person in the film, and she's still pretty bad, frankly. So, I I really appreciated the the murkiness of everybody in this movie, and that you know speaks to Alyssa's issues with not finding Bradley Cooper's character relatable. I think what I enjoy about this movie is that it doesn't fall into the relatability trap. It doesn't like it doesn't attempt to do any of that. Uh, conventional Hollywood work of making you like, of trying to make you like these characters despite their badness, right? There's this, uh, uh, screenwriters talk about um, about uh, not just uh, relatability, but about rootability, right? You, they want you, they want to write characters, especially protagonists, who you can root for, and there is absolutely no one in this film to root for, and I loved it. Uh, yeah. to, to be clear, I really think that sort of relatability is not what I'm talking about with Cooper. There's just something I have a hard time connecting with him as an actor. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I kind of rooted for Zena and Pete. I feel bad for them. You know, it's like, just send in Ron Perlman to be the moral enforcer. Uh, well, he is very good at that. All right. Uh, so, uh, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Nightmare Alley? Peter. Thumbs up. Melissa. A more qualified thumbs up. Uh, thumbs up. Good movie. That is it for this week's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the Tao of Jackass. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends about the show. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 